Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for joining us for today's Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. I think yesterday when news came at somewhere around 4 o'clock or so that uh, Speaker of the House David Ralston had died, uh, it was shocking, stunning to uh, many of us who as journalists, legislators, neighbors up in Blue Ridge, uh, people who had known him for years, um, just didn't see this coming quite the way it did. Um, we'd learned a few weeks ago uh, from Caleb McMichin, his longtime uh, spokesperson, that he was not going to run for re-election as Speaker of the House. That in itself was shocking. He'd been there for 12 years and was considered a steady hand in his leadership role. Um, we, and, and we learned at that time that he was, as McMichin put it basically in his release, uh, taking time to recover from an illness. Uh, what we didn't know is that it was an illness that would take his life just weeks later. There's a lot to say about David Ralston, and today we're going to talk with journalists who have covered him, known him over the years, and get their response to his life, his legacy, um, and just what it's going to mean to the legislature to have lost him completely. Uh, so let me start by introducing Kevin Riley. He's my Thursday partner from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and of course, he's the editor-in-chief of the AJC. Kevin, thank you for being here. It's a, it's, it's a sad day for us as I've, who actually yeah, knew Bill. David Ralston. Yeah. Uh, thanks for thanks for having me. Um, I'm uh, you know sad, I think, in the way a lot of other people are. And uh, I mean, I'll just we'll get into this. But David Ralston cared about how uh, the Georgia legislature was covered. And with me, was always adamant that no matter how how our coverage came out, that it be accurate. We're also joined by uh, your colleague, Patricia Murphy, who, uh, of course, is a political reporter and columnist for the AJC. Patricia uh, is uh, moving out of her usual rotation on this show because we really were interested and glad that she would be here to talk about Ralston. Patricia, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks so much for having me on. Thanks for letting me come on this show. It really did feel like a privilege to cover somebody like Speaker Ralston, just the way he operated in such an important institution. And so it's really an honor to join you today to, to have the privilege of, um, of talking about him. Well, thank you. And we're joined by two of my GPB colleagues, uh, Donna Lowry, host of Lawmakers, who got to see a lot of Speaker Ralston as she uh, hosted Lawmakers, which is, of course, the, the TV show that GPB has run. Now it's the longest-running TV show in Atlanta television um, covering the legislature. Donna, we're glad you're with us, too. Well, thank you, Bill, for having me on the show. And, of course, because um, he is the, the second most powerful man down at under the Gold Dome, really, we, uh, he was on Lawmakers a lot, and I would— it was a privilege to get to know him. 
And Riley Bunch is here. Riley, uh, I think many of you know, is public policy reporter for GPB News. And Riley, too, has covered Ralston and others down at the state capitol. Hi, Riley. Hi, Bill. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I have not covered him as long as some of the other journalists on the panel, but he definitely made such a huge impact. And it will be a huge change under the Gold Dome, monumental change. So let's start this conversation. Kevin, I, I want to stipulate something uh, going into this conversation. For people who are observers of politics in Georgia, um, there are going to be some who look at some of the very, very conservative measures that came out of the legislature under his leadership, the heartbeat abortion uh, law, uh, the very, very liberal gun laws that we have here. And they're, they're, I think they're going to tend to view him as kind of being um, on the other side of where they stand on issues. And so when we talk about him with the respect that we all feel for him, they may find that a little out of joint them. But I think part of it, what we want to talk about today is Ralston, the man and the leader who was um, always, always uh, someone trying to seek ways to bring people together in the Georgia House to be a moderate leader to prevent the most conservative bills from getting through. He wasn't always successful, uh, but I think we all felt that he worked in the best interest of the state. You know, Bill, um, running the House of Representatives in Georgia is probably not unlike trying to run a fraternity at UGA. I mean, anything could happen at any time. And David Ralston had a way of making sure the right things happened at the right time. And I can tell you firsthand, even though he was concerned about uh, people in his caucus who might you know, really go at something or, or choose to push legislation that was divisive or not good for the state, in his view, he always kept uh, a good handle on it and insisted that the House of Representatives be respected, especially by us in the media. And um, I can tell you, I once wrote a column during the ethics reform debate uh, as the legislature opened, and I was at, uh, it was very critical of the House. And I I went to the Wild Hog Supper, and I was standing around, and uh, someone came up to me and said, hey, Speaker Ralston wants to talk to you. And I was pretty new to Georgia at the time. We were downtown at that uh, railway place, you know, across from the Capitol, and I had to go outside. And here we were in the shadows of the building, and I didn't know what to expect. And and he would, he would when he disagreed with you, he didn't raise his voice and rant and rave. He made his case. But what, what he made clear to me was, look, if if you want to criticize what we do, go ahead, but don't disrespect this body because this is my life's work and I care about it. Donna? I think what I loved uh, was that he respected what we did. He didn't want, he understood that we, um, he wanted respect for the house. He wanted respect for what, what they do, but he respected our position in what, what we do as journalists. I think that that really went a long way with a lot of us in terms of uh, how we covered it and the feeling that 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 we were respected in um, in our job. I love one thing with lawmakers and Patricia can attest to this is because we're not on until 7 p.m. 
Uh, we're among the last to leave the Capitol um, on when we have uh, uh, programs over there. So those of us who were at the Capitol, and when I was a uh, Capitol correspondent, and, and also when we did our shows there, so we'd leave late, and Ralston would leave also. So there were times when we'd run into him, and instead of just saying, you know, goodbye or, you know, good seeing you, he'd actually stop and talk with us and spend time discussing things about who we were and, you know, our families and things like that. And actually, he had a genuine interest in us, and I think that that made him different in that fact that he he understood what we did, he respected what we did, and he made us he he made us feel important down at the Capitol. Donnie, you sent a note to me um, before we uh, uh, started the show, talking about the last interview you did one on one with Ralston, and and you said that you thought at the time he did not look well. We don't know exactly what's happened here. At least I don't. Uh, maybe some of you have better intelligence, and I assume we will learn more about his, what, what illness finally took his life. But you, this was how long ago, and, and, and you noticed his uh, a, a certain frailty in him. Yeah, definitely. We had a one-on-one with him. Um, I, I think it was near the it was near the end of the legislative session, and we we were talking about 1013 HB 1013, the um, mental health parity bill, mostly. But I also wanted to talk to him about um, the dean of the the house, uh, Calvin Samiri, who was retiring, who had been there since 1974, and I. Um, so we, we had him talk about that, and then I was able to put on it on an iPad and show it to Smyrie during an interview a few days later. And, and we all, and I remember watch, looking at him and thinking he didn't look well. And, uh, and you know, how things go through your head as you're doing the interview and as he was talking. And as we were walking back to our newsroom, several other people mentioned it, in particular the, the photographer who works with us. He's, he he brought it up too, and so we were we were discussing it. You know, I mean, he um, he always reminded me of you know just kind of a, a little kid. He has a, like a boyish face to me, and sometimes his suits were a little big because and he, so you knew he'd lost weight in the in um, the last few years or so. Then um, he had that that kind of look, but he didn't. And he always came across as pretty vibrant, but there was something different there that made me think that something was going on with him. And, of course, we, we had no idea what it was about. And, you know, we're all hearing things, I'm sure you guys have, too, about what, what happened with him. I've had a few lawmakers text me, but I guess we'll, um, we'll wait to hear the, you know, the, the definitive answer as to what happened. Yeah, I think that's right. I don't want to use this show as a forum for speculating or uh, not getting official reports on all that. Uh, Patricia, as I go around, I'm just interested in your general thoughts on having covered uh, David Ralston, and then we'll get into more specific questions. Yeah, so I have covered a number of House speakers in Washington, Nancy Pelosi and John Boehner, um, and the most and others before them, the most successful speakers were institutionalists, meaning they really deeply cared about the role of the House and how it related to the Senate, how it related to the executive. Um, and they always put the institution ahead of their own party or their own political um, kind of interests. There were always political interests that you had to pay attention to because you wanted the majority and you wanted to be the speaker, obviously, so you can't lose. Um, 
But Ralston, I saw the exact same kind of commitment to his institution. And so, but it wasn't just the house. He had a real respect for the role of the press as an institution. He had a real respect for the role of the loyal opposition. And I think that's why so many Democrats that you hear from, I mean, some of the most emotional tributes we got were from Democrats because, and it wasn't because he wasn't conservative. To your point, he passed constitutional carry, passed uh, SB 202, passed um, a number of extremely conservative bills. It's because behind the scenes, he always respected their role and their input um, and saw it as strengthening the chamber and their role for producing for the state, and he did not see it as weakening it. So it all sort of was interconnected like a puzzle. And even the role of the press, he was a reporter himself between college and law school. He worked in Gainesville at the Gainesville Times. And so, um, and he also was a Hill intern and a huge student of history. And he told me what he would read anything about President Lincoln. Um, and I think he, what he respected about the country were the institutions. He's one of the few people who still respects all of those institutions and wants to strengthen them for the future instead of bring them down. Um, Riley, you're welcome to uh, make any observations you'd like, but I do ask you to start with something that Patricia said that, that I, I too, uh, was thinking a lot about. We as journalists who have covered politicians over the years, know that there are those who uh, consider us to be adversaries at the very least, and some consider us worse than that, consider us their enemies, don't want to talk to us, don't believe that we are um, operating in good faith when we uh, deal with them. Um, Ralston was not one of those. As Patricia pointed out, you could dis, you could be critical of David Ralston. You could dis, you could talk, for instance, about uh, whether or not uh, the heartbeat abortion bill was a was uh, in fact a good bill for the state of Georgia. We, we could talk on the show about feeling it was wrong, whatever. Uh, Ralston understood those points of view. He understood the role of journalists. He he I never. No, uh, cannot think of a moment when he ever got angry at anything that was said on this show by me or other uh, members of the panel, uh, because he truly did respect our work. And that makes it a much more important uh, conversation that you have with a politician like that, because you really go back and forth and can talk about issues in a way that's enlightening, not a, a defensive posture that that the uh, uh, person you're talking to um, uh, takes on because he or she is uh, doesn't trust you. Absolutely, and I mean, if it says anything on Sine Die, every session when he's thanking everyone, all the staff in the House, all the lawmakers for all the work they did over the session, he always thanked the press. You know, not everyone wanted to turn around and clap at us at that point, but he always, always thanked the press. And I think that one of the things that I think about going forward is what is access going to look like, because not only was he willing to have, you know, conversations with you, we had pre-session pressers with him. He was regularly available after um, the chamber met. You know, he was very willing to talk to us. And I think back when I came in 2019, this is, oh my gosh, this is such a nice story. So I came back in 2019 and I had no idea anything about Georgia, guys. I will admit that when I came here to Georgia, I did not know anything when I started my job at CNHI. And he took 
um, a, like a 45 minute long interview with me. And I probably asked him all the wrong questions and didn't know any of the historical context, but he never made me feel like I was inferior or did not know what I was talking about. He was so willing to engage with this young reporter who just showed up and had no idea what was going on. Um, and I think that that's just such a testament to the person he was. And also in terms of all the Democrats that are pouring out messages of well wishes for him and personal messages that he called them when their family members were sick. You know, it's, it's above respect. He always saw everyone kind of on an equal level to him, even though he might not agree with what they thought. Kevin? You know, another another story that I think demonstrates his uh, appreciation and respect for his institution and, and the press. So it's no secret we ran a series of investigative stories about that controversy where he was accused of delaying cases in his law practice uh, and using his role as speaker as the reason, and, and it, it turned into a pretty big controversy. In the middle of that, reached out to me and wanted to have lunch. And I sat down with them and again, he did not rant and rave. He, he was not happy. He believed that some of what we had to say was perhaps unfair and inaccurate. He went through that with me. And it, it, it was important because you see a person truly in their worst moments, they will reveal themselves. And when he was under enormous pressure and some thought he might even lose that speakership at, because of this controversy, he never raised his voice. He never yelled, and I've been yelled at by a lot of politicians. I mean, as all of us probably have, he never did that. And at one point he said, look, I know you have a job to do and I have a job to do and let's talk about this. And, and to me, that really captured the moment. I mean, we, we remained very tough on it. We continued to report that story, but he did not use his power, his personality, the situation to try to intimidate me or to get us to change what we were doing. He just wanted me to know what he thought about what we were doing, and he insisted that I hear it. Patricia? Yeah, and Bill, after that, um, kind of in the aftermath, and even in the middle of that scandal, and it really was a scandal, um, the House introduced a bill to change the rules so that um, what Ralston had been doing could not be done in the future. He always uh, defended what he did. I mean, he did not say, oh, you're right, you guys are right. You know, he said, was it very complicated? It's this, it's that, here are the reasons it happened. Um, but the House still passed a bill to change the rules anyway. Most leaders would not let that happen. They would say, I didn't do anything wrong, and you guys are crazy, and this is fake news. You know, I mean, we all know that. Um, after the bill passed, he did a fly around to other media. Um, after he had seen Kevin, he did a fly around to the Augusta Chronicle, to papers all over the state, sat down with our editorial boards, and just said, Let's talk about it. I want to tell you what happened from my perspective and what we've done here in the in the process. And so compare that to candidates now, Bill, who will not talk to the press, will not, will not engage for months, won't answer one question. And the, the difference in the kind of leadership that it provides to engage with the press, have a back and forth, answer all the questions and move on, he, went, he continued to have a strong relationship with the media um, because of the respect he showed them for the role that they played 
in ironing that situation out. Um, and one other quick thing, kind of talking about the role of, of institutions and, and uh, the opposition. Um, I talked to Calvin Smyrie last night. One of Ralston's very best friends, he is an African-American lawmaker from Columbus. They, you wouldn't think of them as like, um, but, you know, a buddy cop movie, but they were very, very close. And I said, you know, when did you guys get so close? When did, how did this friendship start? So I've known him for years. Obviously, they'd worked together. Um, but he went to the speaker when he was thinking of retiring. Um, it was just as Ralston was becoming speaker. And he said, you know, I think I'm going to leave. Um, Democrats are the minority. There's really no role for me here. I used to be in leadership, and I, I don't know if this is a good use of my time. And Ralston said, if you will stay, I give you my word that I'll use you and you will have input, and I trust you, and you trust me, and this will be good for the House. It'll be good for all of our colleagues. If we can have this kind of glue bond us together, it will be good for everyone. And so he stayed, and that he stayed until last year and made a really big difference in a lot of legislation with Ralston as a partner. Calvin Smyrie will be on our show tomorrow to talk about his relationship with David Ralston, longest-serving uh, member of the Georgia legislature out of Columbus, as you say, uh, Patricia, African-American, uh, not necessarily the kind of uh, combination between him and Ralston who you would see coming together to form such a bond. But Calvin will be on the show uh, tomorrow to talk a little more about Ralston. Uh, Donna, let's talk about... Um, what I think was very important now, in retrospect, last session, David Ralston said the most important thing, the only thing aside from having to pass the budget that he truly cared about getting through the legislature was a mental health reform bill because um, Ralston was well aware uh, that the state was in dire need of providing mental services um, in, in a more significant, robust way to the people across the state. And, and I want you to weigh in on it, Donna, but I'd like to first play a little sound of David talking about that during a, a, a show he did with us at Political Rewind last January, because it not only talks about the bill, but I think it gives you a sense of how Ralston saw legislation in the best sense of the word. Bill, I have a hard time believing that uh, mental health reform and, and, and innovation in how we deliver mental health um, mental health care services would be a part of, would, would become a partisan issue. Mm -hmm. I mean I, if that happens, shame on us. This is an issue that's not Republican or Democrat. It's not urban, rural, or suburban. It's not uh, black or white. It's not uh, rich or poor. I mean, this cuts across every strata of our society here in Georgia and everywhere. Um, and it's also an issue I feel very passionate about. Donna, I think that says a lot about the legislation that he cared most about. Yeah, he definitely did. It was this omnibus bill. It was it just this, it had so much in it. It was unprecedented in that, that it, he was talking about mental health parity with um, physical health parity, you know, with, and, and so it was, um, and then he decided to make sure, he, you know, he had um, a Democrat 
uh, helping to lead it with a representative Mary Ma- Margaret Oliver, and, and he and he every time you talked about it, you felt there was something personal. Now he when he I did interviews with him. He focused a lot on his wife and and the fact that she pushed for this bill a lot because of things that within her part of the family. But you could tell that he felt a lot about it. And, and to tell you exactly how he felt about it, what and there was a you know conservative opposition to it. He he kind of kept going despite all of that. And then the day that it passed, um, one of the rare times I remember, I, you know, some people have been around longer um, covering just the Capitol. Remember being probably asked to come onto the floor of the House after it was passed. The journalists, as journalists, we were able to come onto the floor and really see the emotion that he felt after it passed and how important it was to him. He got very emotional afterwards. And this, this was a big deal for him. And it's a, a, quite a legacy for the state of Georgia that he's left us. All right, let's do this. Let's get to our first break of the show and come back. We're going to talk more about uh, David Ralston um, and, and what it means uh, that he is no longer with us. Again, he did give up the speaker's gavel. Uh, um, John Burns will become the next speaker. Patricia Murphy, you wrote about him in a column the other day. I want to talk about that as well. So we'll do that and then get to a few other political issues uh, on Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. GPB lawmakers host Donna Lowry, GPB public policy reporter Riley Bunch, AJC political reporter and columnist Patricia Murphy and the editor-in-chief of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Kevin Riley, join me for our show uh, today. Um, Let's talk, Kevin, about the fact that uh, there were times when Ralston was not able to uh, have his way with bills. Uh, I think the most striking example is the uh, heartbeat uh, law. Uh, When it first was introduced... Neither Ralston nor Governor Kemp uh, liked the extreme form it was being presented in, um, and they uh, made their efforts to modify it to the extent that they could. But the fact is, it became such a passionate cause for the most conservative members and of the you know the the, the base of the Republican Party. That um, that Ralston and Kemp eventually had to uh, give in on that, Kevin, and they got the bill that's now in law and which has now been struck down by a Fulton County uh, uh, judge. Yeah, and you really have to wonder uh, if if that wing of the party had uh, listened a little bit more to David Ralston, if you know everything would have worked a little better, including this idea of the law being being struck down. But I do think it demonstrated his pragmatism, which is like, okay, there's a point where, you know, you can lead and guide people, but if you if you can't 
you know, convince them of your way, especially as they headed into an election year. I think you just had that pragmatic streak. Well, okay. I, I mean, I, I don't get to impose my personal will here. I'm leading in this in this chamber, and if I uh, don't let people who believe things are important and who have gathered up the support for something they want to do, if I don't let them legislate, ultimately I won't be in this chair. Um, and Pat- Patricia, uh, it strikes me that um, uh, it, it, Chuck Bullock talked about this on our show yesterday. Uh, it, there was an effort to, in fact, pass a, a, a law that would be a trigger law that would go into effect only if if the Supreme Court were to overturn Roe v. Wade. Um, but the, uh, the, the most conservative members said, no, we don't want that. We just want a blanket statement that we oppose abortion, except in the most restrictive cases. Um, and, and that's the reason that right now it has, it's not, according to Judge Robert McBurney, passing constitutional muster. Well, I think even during the debate, there was um, an assumption, even by some Republicans, that that bill was not constitutional, and that is, in fact, why they voted for it. Um, However, I I also, I really agree with Kevin. I, you know, I watched Ralston, and I would often think of him as like the lid on a pot of boiling water. And sometimes that caucus would, you know, you hear so much from your constituents, the time is right. They've got the majority. They've got the votes. Um, he had to, like, let some steam out of that pot by letting these votes go forward or else it would explode. And he would no longer be the leader. Um, and, I mean, there was never talk of, like, a major rebellion against him. But he had a very keen sense of where his caucus was and when he needed to let them move forward um, with a bill. Now, many of those bills, I would say there's a, the transgender sports bill is a really good example. And so is SB 202, which was the election overhaul. There were narrow places where he would pull those bills back and make them less extreme, less conservative. A big piece of that was because he also knew where the polling was and he knew where the state was. And would that endanger some of his members in more moderate districts when it was time for them to go up for re-election as well? So we always had to balance the needs of the people, even within the Republican caucus, who did not all think the same on these and were not all as um, all as conservative on all of these issues. So it was always a balancing act with Ralston that he got very, very right most of the time. And that's why there was never taught what it was so hard for them to figure out how to move forward after Ralston, because nobody had contemplated what happens after Ralston. You know, there's not been an, an internal conversation like, okay. Time for Ralston to go, who do we want next? It was just, oh, Ralston's here. And pretty much to a person, people in the chamber were grateful for that. You know, Riley, uh, Ralston came into power as speaker in, what, 2010, which was simultaneous with the rise of the Tea Party, the the first group of extreme uh, right-wing Republicans who wanted to take control of the party in many ways with their very, very conservative agenda. So he had that to deal with in terms of some of the members of his caucus. And then, of course, in more recent years, he had to deal with the Trump wing of the party, the election deniers, uh, those who uh, supported uh, Trump's more extreme agenda. He was he was a leader in a difficult time to try to br- bring uh, uh, the House uh, together. 
Absolutely. And I think one of the his greatest strengths is he always thought about the party and the state in the long term. You know, he wasn't thinking about the the political trends, you know, what what is the Republican Party on a national level diving into? He was always thinking about how does the party hold control of the state in the long term? And I think that that's something that could really easily go missing without him, um, kind of that longer vision for the future of Georgia and what legislation, just as Patricia was saying, to let go or to push forward based on, you know, the changing demographics of the state of Georgia and changing voter base, changing electric. We had redistricting this year, right? We have a smaller Republican majority, not a, not a big, not a big change, but a little bit of change, right? So I think that that's something that he really always took into consideration when fighting back against these things, like pushing back about some of the more far right extreme bills that would come through is this, does this help the state in the long term? How does this help the Republican Party maintain control in the long term? All right, let's, Donna, talk about this in terms of the practicalities of where we stand with the Georgia State Legislature right now. <clears throat> uh, Ralston had already uh, surrendered the Speaker's gavel, and, uh, in it, it, and in their election the other day, the Republican members of the House nominated John Burns uh, to be the next Speaker. That election will take place when they come into session in January. Um, but over in the uh, Senate, you've got a new lieutenant governor, uh, you've, you've got Burt Jones. Um, so you're, the, the, the leadership of the legislature is transforming at a very crucial time. Do we expect it to move further to the right? Um, is, is John Burns going to be at Patricia Murphy wrote a column that we'll talk about in a second, which she suggested that he's the closest thing to a, to a, uh, a Ralston in terms of his, uh, way of, uh, of governing and his thinking about policy. But what, what are you looking for, Donna, when the session starts in January? Oh, I think it'll start off pretty emotional, first of all. I think people were going to have to deal with the fact that Ralston's not there. It, I can't imagine what, what that's going to be like. So I think the, the beginning of it is going to be that reality for everybody, for Democrats and Republicans. Um, I think the fact that it appears, you know, that John Burns certainly got the blessing of the speaker before he passed away, that will make a huge difference. Then you've got something very interesting right now. We've got a madam house speaker with um, Jan Jones, who was speaker pro him being the um, being the speaker right now in interim. And uh, so we've got that. And, you know, they worked together for years. And so uh, I think in that sense, we're going to see that things kind of continue along the same lines. And then you've got some, some other more moderate people on the House side with uh, Representative uh, Chuck Abstration, who uh, is, is part of the leadership team as a majority leader. So I think for now, we're, I don't think there, it's going to be, I think at least the, the early part of the session will um, we'll move slowly toward making some changes. I don't think there'll be any major disruptions in the way things are done early on. Patricia? Yeah, I agree with that. I think that John Burns, by choosing John Burns, that was a choice of the Republican caucus for stability and continuity. Uh, John Burns had been the majority leader for the last eight years, so was a very close hand of Ralston's and seen as being a very close ally of Ralston's. And the other sort of Ralston 
um, allies who had also put themselves forward for speaker all coalesced behind him. And so it was the agreement um, sort of writ large that th this will be the, the closest thing to continuity that we can provide. Um, but then uh, additionally, as Donna said, there are some younger members who have come into leadership, Chuck Abstration and Houston Gaines in particular, who are both very close with Ralston also. And um, Chuck Abstration worked with Ralston on the hate crimes legislation that passed, mm -hmm. as well as that huge overhaul to the citizen's arrest bill um, that came after Ahmaud Arbery was killed. And that was very, very important to both the speaker and to Calvin Smyrie. And um, so those are the types of um, people that uh, Republicans have voted in. And these were all contested spots. So it's not like they were just waiting in the wings, but these are really the affirmative choices of the majority of the caucus. And in talking to um, Democrats in the chamber as well, they feel good about this too. It's not like they're not conservative people, but these are people that Democrats also feel like will respect their role and that they can work with and have worked with as well. These are not new people. But um, so I think it's largely a sign of, of continuity going forward. The, the one twist is that also there's all new leadership in the state Senate. And um, yep. that creates a really interesting dynamic because because Ralston had been the speaker for so long, he had so much influence that he could sort of he did often completely ignore the state Senate and say, that's what they're doing in that chamber. Here's what we're doing in the House. And here's what's happening. So um, it will be interesting to see if Burns has that kind of influence and sway, because he will be just as new as um, John Kennedy over as pro Tem and as uh, Burt Jones as um, the new lieutenant governor. Um, and and uh, Kevin, one one of the reasons that what Patricia just said is particularly important is that uh, traditionally uh, it's the Senate that's been the far more conservative body in the legislature and is often uh, the body that authors uh, measures that uh, Ralston and House leaders consider too extreme. Uh, uh, so the question will be, will John Burns be able to push back against that if it happens uh, again in uh, this session? Yeah, you really uh, wonder if this will all hold together because, um, I mean, I, I'm not over there every day like the rest of our panel, but this abortion bill, right? I mean, the, Judge McBurney invited them to write and pass a new one. And depending on, you know, who leads that effort and where the Senate is and, and where the House is, you could see that really uh, the potential for all of it unraveling. You know, this nice, um, seamless transition to the Ralston way. Meanwhile, you know, you just don't know what the incentives will be on passing an abortion bill. So I just wonder about that. I mean, you kind of hope for the sake of the state, because I, I believe that Ralston felt that. Like, I have to move this state forward. I have a time. This is my place. This is my time. And that's why the mental health thing was so important and the hate, hate crimes bill, all that stuff. He felt like he was Georgian through and through and um, had the power to not have to just worry about getting reelected or getting in headlines. And will that hold up? I, you know, you really hope it does, but it, it, there's a chance it won't. Um, Riley, before we take a break, and I do want to come back and talk about the abortion uh, fallout, um, 
I think the fact that Chuck F. Stration was elected majority leader is interesting, too. Uh, people who listen to Political Rewind know that Chuck's been on the show with some regularity because F. Stration is up there in Gwinnett County. Now, he's done well surviving as a Republican in a county that all around him is bluer and bluer all the time. But because he's in Gwinnett, he has to be mindful of uh, trying to strike a more moderate position on many of the issues that the legislature deals with. So that may tell us a little bit, too, about working in combination with uh, John Burns, that the House is not about to go off the deep end to the right. Absolutely. And I think what we've seen from how this last election played out is that abortion is such one of those issues that Republicans might not be winning on. Right. And it will be really, really interesting to see if Republicans have taken a little bit of notes from Republicans running on more national levels and statewide levels who kind of didn't talk about abortion on the campaign trail at all. Right. Because of this fear of losing some more moderate and swing voters. So it'll be interesting to see how they choose to go about that in this next session. All right. We'll come back and talk more about that issue in just a moment. You're listening to Political Rewind. Patricia, when Judge Robert McBurney uh, ruled that the uh, state's heartbeat abortion law was unconstitutional, he said it was because, in fact, at the time that it was signed into law, Roe v. Wade was still the law of the land, and therefore uh, the state could not uh, pass a law that was uh, contradictory to Roe v. Wade. And so he said if the legislature wants to come back in January now that Roe is no longer the law of the land, that's up to them. Of course, Chris Carr, the attorney general, has already said they're going to appeal that ruling up to the state Supreme Court. And I think you reported in this morning's uh, AJC that the legislative leaders are saying, well, we're not in such a hurry until we see what the state Supreme Court does. Have I got that right? Yes, that's right. Um, There is a sense that they would like to see how the legal process plays out. What kind of a time frame are they looking at? And um, uh, Chris Carr has said he believes that the uh, state Supreme Court will will overturn this ruling or put the bill back into effect. And so while that is still in limbo, um, our understanding is that on um, especially on the House side, they're going to wait to see what happens next with the legal challenges. Um, It would be a huge early test for John Burns to make a decision like this about whether or not to move forward. There may also be individual bills floated by um, individual lawmakers anyway, no matter what the leadership does, just to put a bill out there. Um, But at the moment, it looks like they're going to wait for uh, the legal process to move forward and get a better sense of where it looks like it's going. Meanwhile, Riley, we have to remind listeners that the bill only passed by one vote when it first came to the floor. Absolutely. It's a completely different atmosphere, right, than when it was passed before. And I think the, also the one of probably the reasons why lawmakers are holding off is because McBurney's ruling didn't even touch um, constitutionality of the right to privacy. It didn't touch any of those aspects of the law. So we don't really have a good idea of how a court would rule on those aspects. Um, So it makes sense that the lawmakers would kind of want to push 
and wait and bide their time on that. But I also think that that doesn't mean we're not going to see other abortion restrictions, just like Patricia said, kind of individual bills like um, abortion pills by mail and the other things like that. Like, I, I, I believe we'll see some of that this session, but whether they'll touch the 2019 law again is, is definitely a question. Kevin? You know, Bill, one thing I just feel compelled to point out is listeners of this show would remember that back in the summer when you were on vacation and I guest hosted, we had uh, Fred Smith, the law professor from Emory, uh, who is, uh, again, one of the really great guests that that, uh, joined the show. And and Fred really went down the logic that uh, this particular case was pursuing that was in front of Judge McBurney. And he did say, hey, it's a very strong case because in Georgia law, you cannot pass a bill that is illegal at the time it is passed. And that is at the core of McBurney's ruling, despite his uh, flowery language and acerbic wit within that uh, ruling, it, that is it. Uh, and so, uh, you know, again, I, I think it's a tribute to the show that uh, I even understand that and remembered it because I'm a faithful listener and participate. So I think it's a tough situation right now for the legislator. And they may be hoping that the Supreme Court overturns it. But, you know, the Georgia Supreme Court, they, you know, I get they're conservative and, you know, we can debate who appointed whom and all that. But, man, those guys, that court comes back to Georgia law a lot. They come back, they usually rely on it historically and recently. So it'll be very interesting to see what happens. Um, Donna, um, why don't you weigh in on this? But I'd love for you to also add to whatever you want to say the fact that we now know that abortion clinics in the state, some of of them at least, are already beginning to accept clients uh, who would not be eligible for an abortion uh, under the law who are more than uh, basically six weeks pregnant. Yeah, that's right. They're, they're, what we're hearing is that the phones are ringing off the hooks, that, that people are considering uh, decisions that they didn't think were available to them before now. I think, you know, I think it's, it's also interesting that, um, you know, we're coming up on a legislative session where we will have uh, fewer Republicans, you know, who will be um, available to, uh, in a position to be able to vote on this. And as you pointed out, there was just the one vote. I always go, you know, when thinking of Ralston, get back, getting back to him, that the night that that the um, heartbeat bill passed, what a um, what a tense emotional night that was. Not only with people, not only outside in, you know, with people who were protesting and all, but inside, and how well he was able to handle all of that, understanding things that um, that it, that it was so emotional, and that that there were people who. Um, who, you know, stood up while the, um, the sponsor, Representative Sessler, spoke, that there were Democrats who turned their backs on him, that there were some people who held um, hangers in their hands and, and that kind of thing. And, and uh, Representative Renita Shannon, who actually got real emotional at the well and had to be moved off of the um, the floor by members of her uh, Democratic Party. So, I, you know, this is another thing where I possibly some of his legacy will, um, will, you know, pass along to those who are thinking about what the atmosphere was during that. Of course, during that time, of course, there's, you know, there are a lot of new people coming in. So, um, the, you know, some things are going to still be up in the air because of that. It will be a different um, legislative session in that sense. 
Riley and Patricia, uh, one more uh, uh, note about this, or two actually. Uh, number one, uh, there of course are many people who, when Roe was overturned, uh, suggested that Republicans who were pushing for uh, uh, abortion to be made illegal were the were the dogs that caught the car. They didn't really expect it to be overturned, and suddenly we're feeling very, very vulnerable. That's one thing. But the other aspect of this is that in debates, Governor Kemp had two different answers about whether he would support new efforts to pass new abortion restrictions. Uh, the first time he was asked it in the first debate, he said he didn't have much intention to, any intention to. Second time, he said, well, legislators may bring things forward, and if they do, I'll have to listen to what they have to say. Riley and Patricia, I'd love to get your thoughts on that. You know, I think that that kind of speaks to the position that Governor Kemp was in on the campaign trail as well. You know, he's comfortably reelected, so he could come back and, um, you know, do some of the things that he said he wasn't going to on the campaign trail. We don't know because he's back in office and it's very, very different than when he's fighting for the votes. Right. But I think that's kind of what I mentioned earlier. It'll be interesting to see if Republicans have taken hints about how voters have reacted to this issue on a national level um, in places like Kansas and um, kind of this uproar and Democrats capitalizing it during the midterms. It will be curious to see if that trickles down to state lawmakers who may not be as willing or um, interested in touching this issue again. What's your take on that, Patricia? Yeah, so I think that um, when the bill was passed, it wasn't that the lawmakers didn't think it was a good idea. There are very, very conservative lawmakers down there who believe firmly that abortion is murder. Um, so, but when Kemp was asked that question, it was also when the bill was still was still law, and the question really was, would you go for a zero, you know, zero abortion ban at all? Would you close some of those loopholes? And so, I think that while it's in the courts, this really does reset the table to say, okay. Now we're in a totally different environment right now. What are we going to do next? And that will really require the leadership probably of the governor as well um, to say, this is what we think can pass. This is what we think is a good idea. He's not up for re-election, but all of these lawmakers now, they've only got two-year terms, every single one of them. So they're going to be going back home um, in April and, frankly, every weekend, and they're going to hear from their constituents. And they're, they're in redrawn districts that may, in some cases, be more conservative than they were before, um, although there are literally not the votes today to pass the exact same bill with the same people in the, in the chamber because Republicans have lost three seats in the House and one seat in the Senate. Yeah, Kevin, I think they'd love for the state Supreme Court to take them off the hook and rule that the abortion law can stay in place rather than starting all over and being vulnerable to the criticism that would arise and uh, the potential that there would have constituents turning against them. Right. Both both parties have a problem in this case. The, the Republicans have the problem is just how restrictive do you want to make uh, the law around abortion? And then when Democrats argue from the pro-abortion point of view, they, they don't always have a very good answer for whether there should be any restrictions at all. So it's, a, it's become an issue that they both can win or lose on. All right. We are completely out of time uh, for today's show. Um, I'm really grateful uh, to all of you, uh, Donna Lowry, Patricia Murphy, 
Riley Bunch, the three of you all agreed at the last minute to join this show to talk with us about your thoughts on Speaker Ralston and and the other issue, the abortion issue we took up. But thank you so much for being part of the conversation today. And Kevin Riley, as always, uh, it's great to have you as my partner on this show on Thursday. So uh, that's it for us today. We're back with a new show tomorrow. We're going to talk a little more about Speaker Ralston, because as I mentioned earlier, Calvin Smyrie will be here. Uh, So will Mary Margaret Oliver, who worked very closely uh, as a Democrat with David Ralston. And we're still working on a couple other people who we'll bring in for our conversation. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care. Stay healthy. If you don't have a flu shot, go get one. It's flu season. See you all tomorrow.